0: Bibles at Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 4. This vision is of the candlestick and the two olive trees. I have entitled it the triumphant power of God in his service. Just as chapter 4, the acquittal of the high priest, which uh, I have entitled the triumphant grace of God in his service. Uh, These two visions are very much linked together, one giving the manward side of service and the other giving the Godward side of service. Uh, The the fourth vision gives the Godward side, the fifth vision gives the manward side. The high priest speaks of our our service uh, in the presence of the Lord. The candlestick and the olive trees speak of our service down here amongst men. We have two services, one toward God and the other outward toward men. In this vision, we see a candlestick, or more correctly, a lampstand beaten out of gold. You'll see that in verse 2. Its material is gold. It differs from the one in the tabernacle in this sense that it has a bowl above it. If I take this um, uh, candlestick, which is more or less a representation of the one we're talking about, uh, this vision, the best way you can understand it, you see, the one in the tabernacle was just simply like that. It had uh, the lamps on top of it, which were filled with oil. Uh, every day, and kept always alight. It was never allowed to go out. Now this uh, candlestick we see in this vision differs from the one in the tabernacle in that it has above it, uh, toward the back, a golden bowl, a reservoir of oil. And from that golden bowl come out seven pipes, one to each of the lamps uh, of of the lampstand. Then on either side of the golden bowl, or reservoir of oil, there is an olive tree. And the olive tree pours into the bowl golden oil. Now this was the vision which Zechariah saw. And later on, in verse 12, his attention is focused upon two particular branches of the olive trees. Now, what what must we note about this vision? Well, first of all, all the material is gold. These are the facts of the vision. We've seen what the vision was. Now, what about, what does it mean? Well, first of all, all the material is gold. Note that. In the Bible, gold always speaks of the divine nature. Put it more simply, the nature of Christ, the character. Of Christ. Divine nature. So this whole candlestick and the bowl and the pipes that go from it are all of divine nature. Their their substance is all gold. The second thing in this vision, two olive trees. Now trees in the Bible always symbolize man or men. And oil always from beginning to end of the Bible symbolizes the Holy Spirit or the Spirit. And we have in this vision then, Spirit-filled and anointed men with the fruit of the Spirit. Now it is very interesting that in verse 14, the Hebrew literally um, is, you see it says anointed ones. Verse 14, he said, then said, he, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. That literally is sons of oil. These are the two sons of oil that stand by the Lord of the whole earth, the Anointed One, sons of oil. The third thing we see in this vision is golden oil. Again, this is very interesting. It speaks of the Holy Spirit, but here is a most interesting fact. The actual Hebrew is not oil, it's gold. If you look at it very carefully, if you've got your revised version or your American Standard Version, you will see that it speaks that they empty the gold out of themselves. Your margin says Hebrew, just gold. They have put in the word oil because they believe that's what it was meant, golden oil. But in the symbolism of this, of this, um, uh, of this vision, we are to understand that the trees are emptying out the gold itself. The oil and gold is somehow mixed. You got the idea? It's most important. You see, the light comes from the oil. Now the scripture speaks of the light of life. You know that there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's one kind of light. The light of mental uh, I- intellect. Of our natural understanding. Then there is another light. The light of life. Christ was the one who gives the light of life. He said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The light of life. So here we have a picture of a ministering of Christ by the Spirit. You understand? This gold speaks of divine nature, and it's being ministered through these olive trees. Now those are the three things that you have. Now will you note carefully then that all in this vision is essentially of God. Gold, oil, light. All of that is essentially and fundamentally of God. God the Son by the Holy Spirit making himself known in us to men. You got it? God the Son by the Holy Spirit In us, making himself known to men. Now, what does it mean? These are the facts of the vision. What does this vision mean? Well, the candlestick is a symbol of the church as the light-bearer of God in this dark world, holding the testimony of Jesus, who is the light. Now, if you look up Revelation, the book of Revelation... Chapter 1, verse 20, last part, very last part of the verse, the seven candlesticks, or lampstands, are seven churches. Here we see that the candlestick represents the church. It is a symbol of the church. And then in that same chapter, Mm -hmm. verse 9, you have this, um, this interesting phrase that you get right the way through the book of Revelation, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Then in chapter 2 and verse 5, we read, Repent and do the first works, or else I come to thee and will move thy candlestick. Now, how can the Lord remove a candlestick from a church? If it is the church, how can it cease to be the church? You see, this candlestick represents the church as God intended it. Surely the candlestick, in fact, is centered in the testimony of Jesus. If the candlestick is removed, that means that company of Christians ceases to hold the testimony of Jesus. Then in God's sight, it has ceased to function. And it's very important for us to understand. You see, in, in God's mind, the church is the light bearer, but the important thing is the light that it gives. It, its whole function, it, it, its whole the whole idea in its constitution is that it should give light. Now of course in the other vision the idea was more one of human communion with the Lord, the high priest in the presence of God interceding with him, representing others before the Lord, having a deep inward knowledge of him, the friend of God. But in this Vision. We have the other side of service, the manward side of service. If you and I have ceased to be light bearers, if as a company we've ceased to be a light bearer, we, as far as God is concerned, there's no point. That I believe is very important. So this, this the symbolism of this vision is that the candlestick represents the church as the light bearer. Holding the testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus, what is it? It is simply, in the simplest word, and we can't spend a lot of time on this this evening, it is simply, if you want it in a a word or two, the presence of the living God within or in the midst. That's the testimony of Jesus. Jesus bore this testimony. God was in him. That's all. God was in him. When you met Jesus, you met God. That's the testimony of Jesus. Jesus manifested and declared God, the Father. When you saw him, you saw God. That's it. The, the presence of the living God. The presence of the living God. Not a knowledge of the living God. Not just a preaching about the living God. But the presence of the living God. When Christ touched people, they were immediately conscious they're touching God. Why, he seems to be just a man, but somehow there's something else. Now that is the testimony of Jesus. Not only the giving of testimony to what God is and who God is, but the manifestation of his presence in and through us. The testimony of Jesus being held by us simply is this, that men and women come amongst us and say, God is here. They fall down. They are immediately, these are just ordinary people, aren't they? Ordinary mortals. But there's something extra, something beyond them, something that, well, can only be explained by God. By the presence of God himself. Now that is what it means to hold the testimony of Jesus. It's important to preach the word of God. It is as important to hold the testimony of Jesus. The two things go together. Today, in evangelical circles, and here I include all of us, all those of us are Christians, there's an awful lot of preaching of the Word of God, but very little holding of the testimony of Jesus. That's the point. The two go together. the presence of the living God manifesting himself through the members of his body. So that men and women in touching us suddenly discover that they touch touched the living God. Now that, I believe, is partly the meaning of this vision. The candlestick is therefore often connected with witnessing. It's not just that we say, well, we believe in a God, but we manifest God. So that people not only listen to our words, but if they are honest, they see the light. The light of God in us shines into their heart and immediately become aware that they are in the dark. That there are things that are wrong. They see things for what they are. If you turn to Revelation chapter 11, (coughs) a chapter which is peculiarly uh, related to this chapter of Zechariah, And um, verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the Lord of the earth. That's a direct reference back to Zechariah. If you read through that chapter yourself, you'll find it's all about the house of God and it's all about the two witnesses who in the last day are to stand and declare uh, the Lord throughout the whole earth. You see, it's testimony. This, This candlestick, these candlesticks speak of the witnessing of the church. Not just preaching, not just proclamation, but the manifesting of the presence of God in and through them. Now, in Zechariah's day, the testimony of the Lord had been lost. The glory had long before departed. The Lord had, an, had no actual dwelling place on the earth. His house was in the process of being rebuilt at that very time. It is therefore obvious that the candlestick here is connected with this work of rebuilding and recovery and the battle over it. You've only got to look at verses 6 to 10 in Zechariah chapter 4 to see that it's all to do with this work of recovery. See, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O, o great mountain before us? A rubble, thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace unto it. You see, this the candlestick here is connected with this work of reconstruction. That's very important again for us to understand. There is a great mountain of immovable and impossible difficulty standing in the way well and threatening to effectively frustrate the whole world of Reconstruction. I don't know whether any of you know something of that. In one sense that wasn't God's problem. Now God's problem is our sinful uncleanness. Let us make that abundantly clear. That is God's problem. I'm afraid being such uh, darkened creatures, uh, often uh, the question of sinful uncleanness doesn't bother us very much. Because we have all little ways of getting out of things and evading things. Comparing ourselves with others and so on. Even as Christians. But that's God's problem. Our problem is always this great difficulty seen on the horizontal level. This mountainous range that lies between us and the fulfillment of God's purpose. Now of course to to God that's no problem. There's no mountain with God. He has dealt with the problem of our sinful uncleanness. In the preceding vision now he deals with the problem from man's point of view to us this is an impossible situation and it cannot be overcome by the greatest of human might or power not by might nor by power now whenever we have a difficulty we usually match it with might our might a little bit later we try to call in others and match it with their might but nearly always, if there's a mountain in the way, we somehow or other try our own human ingenuity to overcome it, don't we? We, we? It's ingrained within us. Might and power must answer to might and power. But the whole point is this, that in this great spiritual battle, not the greatest of human might or power will overcome it. That's another point. Then, in this vision, we have set forth the recovery of the testimony of Jesus, or the testimony of the Lord, and a revelation of the only way the work can be done. When Zechariah asks for the meaning of this vision, and you must always, in these visions, look for the question and answer, because they are the key to the When Zechariah asks for the meaning of this vision, he is told that the key to everything lies in the Holy Spirit. You see, in verse 6, he is told, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit. How can that testimony be recovered? How can the purpose of God be realized? How will that mountainous difficulty be removed? How can the work be completed? How can the glory of Israel, the Lord himself, the Messiah, be brought in? How? By the Holy Spirit. He is the key to it all. The answer, you see, is that it is is not going to be by might, human might, or power. with that. It is impossible. But it can and will be accomplished by the Holy Spirit in us. Now, here's the point. Listen to these wonderful words. You see, verse 6. This is the word of the Lord unto the Verse 7. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel. Then verse um, 9. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation. His hands shall finish it. Verse 10. And they shall see the plummet in the, land, in the hand of Zerubbabel. Now, you see, the whole point is this. The Lord is saying, on the one side, not by human might or power. He said, by my Holy Spirit, but it's by my Holy Spirit in, upon, and through the rubble. Now, it is as simple as that. The ball here represents all God's people again. In this This other aspect of divine service. How is the Lord going to accomplish it? Not by our ingenuity. Not by our energy. Not by our might. Not by our resources. He's going to do it by the Holy Spirit. But by the Holy Spirit in us, upon us, and through us. That's how he's going to do it. So this great mountain is going to become a plain. The top stone is going to be brought forth. The work's going to be gloriously finished. And the Holy Spirit's going to do it. But the Holy Spirit's going to do it in us. Now I consider that to be absolute grace. Because if the Lord wanted to, he could do the whole thing simply himself. He could do it through the media of angels. But he does it through sinful men who have been gloriously closed, as we saw In the preceding vision, their sin has been removed. It is interesting also to note that the candlestick and all to do with it is gold. That is, it's all Christ. How are we to become Christ-like? Do you ever ask yourself that question? How am I to become Christ-like? The more I see of myself in the light of the Lord, the more I wonder, how can I become Christ-like? How am I to be conformed to the image of God's Son? How? By the Holy Spirit alone. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18. As we behold the glory of the Lord. As we behold the, the glory of the Lord is in the mirror. So we are changed from glory into the same image. As by the Lord of the Spirit. See, that's how it's done. By the Holy Spirit. We receive something of the Lord. The only thing that's going to be glorified in the end is Christ. Christ in you. And Christ in me, the hope of glory. There, there's a question of how much of Christ there is. And that's uh, going to determine how much glory there will be. So you see here, we've, we've got it. The gold. Well, that city's all made of gold, isn't it? It is the lampstand. The glory and the light of God shines through its transparency. You see? It's pure gold, refined so that it is transparent as crystal. It's all Christ. And we receive more and more of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And what is of Christ in us is developed by the Holy Spirit. Then also we must note the light comes from the oil. It is the light of life, as I've mentioned. But it is the light of his life. Now this treasure, this treasure that we have in earthen vessels is the presence of the living God. Now, of course, if you and I had our eyes open to realize that in you, in me, in these frail bodies, there we have the presence of the living and infinite God, our whole attitude to life would change. Nothing would be impossible. The trouble is our eyes are not open. But if you and I saw what this vision means, it would change everything. You see, the the light comes from the oil. It comes from this presence of the Lord within, by the Holy Spirit. How can that presence of the Lord, how can that treasure be manifested by the Holy Spirit? Romans 8. Just read through it. I can't go through it all. i because got to be here all night and these visions. But it's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. You, see, you go on there, you discover all, it, everything is through the spirit. The olive trees supplying golden oil, the actual gold, speak of spirit-filled men ministering Christ. Now I wonder what you receive from me and what I receive from you. What we receive one from another. Do we minister Christ? Do we impart Christ in the most natural, normal way? Are we actually receiving Christ, not in a sanctimonious, pious way, but actually touching the Lord? That's the thing that matters. Finally, Zechariah asks about the olive trees, and particularly about two branches, in verse 11 and verse 12. He asks, first of all, what are these two olive trees? And then, a second time, I said, what are these two branches of the olive trees? Now, this is very interesting, because the trees obviously symbolize the two great aspects of service dealt with in the two visions, priesthood and kingship. See? They're the two great human institutions of service, priesthood and kingship, both anointed, that they may may reveal and manifest the Lord. The two branches are one branch from the priesthood, Joshua the high priest. The other branch from the kingship side, Zerubbabel the governor. That is perfectly clear, I believe. The point is this, that such service, serving the Lord of the whole earth, can only be fulfilled under the anointing. That is, it can only be fulfilled by the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, we've been made kings and priests unto God. Now, everyone in this room is a king. And everyone in this room who's born of God is a priest. We have been made kings and priests unto God. But you and I cannot function as kings and priests uh, unto God until we are anointed, until we know the anointing That is, we've got to become sons of oil. We've got to become those that are Spirit-anointed, Holy Spirit-anointed, and Holy Spirit-filled. In this way, we can fulfill this great service uh, 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 of the Lord. So, on this vision, what do we learn? We learn this. The triumphant power of God in his service the mountainous range of difficulty must dissolve before the Holy Spirit in us. Now if you go and stand in front of that mountainous range of difficulty and start just talking little words over it like some people do, you'll find it's there tomorrow, just the same as it was yesterday. If you say to the Holy Spirit, will you please dissolve the great mountain of difficulty, you'll find it's there tomorrow, just as it was yesterday. When you and I wake up to the fact that the Holy Spirit is in us, that's when there's a change in the mountainous difficulties. They get levelled. The secret is not I on my own and the Holy Spirit over there. No. It is I as a branch and the gold coming through, the oil coming through. Do you see? That's the secret. This, this, a vision speaks, you see, of the service of God's church, the function of the church, man ward. Now, I'll have to leave this, although there's a lot more I'd like to say. May I just say this, that triumphant power is always linked, the triumphant power of God is always linked with the poured-out Holy Spirit, just as the triumphant grace of God is always linked with the crucified Christ. The two are two sides to service. Triumphant grace in the service of the Lord. Why? Because of a crucified Christ. Triumphant power in in the service of the Lord. Why? Because of a poured out Holy Spirit. Of course, Christ is prefigured supremely uh, in these last verses. He is the Anointed One. You know, of course, I suppose all of you, that Christ means the Anointed One. That's what it means. The Anointed One. He is the Anointed One, combining these two Anointed Ones that stand before God into one. He is the one branch, combining the two branches into one. The branch. His name is the branch. He combines in himself both kingship and priesthood. He is the one upon whom the Spirit fully rested, the founder and finisher of God's house. Well, now when we come to the next vision, the sixth vision, in chapter 5, from verse 1 to 4, it's only a few verses, but it's a rather involved vision. Uh, uh, We've called it here the flying scroll And I am entitled it, and I want you to listen to this if you are able to, The Word of God and Deceitfulness in His Work. The next three visions are linked. The sixth and the seventh are particularly concerned with sin and counterfeit, whether in God's own or in those only nominally so. The eighth vision, in the last one, is connected to the first, Revealing the sovereign activity of the Lord over his purpose. Now it's, w- it's a wonderful thing, at least in my estimation, that before we come to the severe sixth and seventh visions, which are very wonderful actually, well understood, but rather severe, we have seen the grace of God triumphing over us in the fourth. It would be a terrible thing to come to these two visions uh, uh, without that wonderful acquittal of, of of the high priest in the fourth Vision. Now, what does this vision consist of? I don't know if you've read it, I do hope you have. I shall refer to it. We obviously can't read each of these. This vision consisted of a very large unrolled scroll flying through the midair. Now, ancient scrolls were usually made of skin or parchment and they were very closely written upon. And they were rolled up, much as we roll up today, that's why I've kept this out, uh, much as we roll up a wall map. You see, they were rolled up from either end. Sometimes they were entirely rolled up, so it was all rolled up on one end, sometimes like this. But even when they were read, and the Jews used to read them simply like this, they hardly ever, for fear of light, Um, causing uh, fading and the printing, uh, the writing and so on, they hardly ever kept them open for very long. So when you read, you more or less just uh, uh, rolled up and unrolled what you were actually reading. You understand? So this vision is a rather remarkable one, because the scroll that was flying through the mid-air was completely unrolled. Now that has significance and is important. This one was a very large one. It was 20 cubits by 10, which roughly is 30 foot, that is longer than this room, much longer, by 15 foot, half roughly, which is a pretty big scroll. Now that again has significance. So let's get it. It's a very large scroll, scroll flying in the, in the, in the air, uh, unrolled, unraveled completely, 30 by 15 feet. And therefore, it was displaying all of its contents publicly and everywhere. Now, is that clear to everyone? Everyone could see it. It was large enough. Evidently, the writing was big enough for all to be able to see. And you could see the whole lot. It is obvious that this scroll refers to the Word of God. Its dimensions, and these are some interesting facts, its dimensions are the exact dimensions of the temple porch, which was 20 cubits by 10, where God's word was always, usually, read. The law. We read that in 1 Kings 6. 3. The two types of sin mentioned particularly in these verses, in this vision, are connected with two of the ten commandments. With the third Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And the eighth, thou shalt not steal. That again is very interesting. One from each of the two tables. Very interesting. Again, if you want to uh, pursue this matter further, it's very interesting. In the Septuagint version, that is the Greek version of the Old Testament, instead of the word scroll, they have got the word sickle with the two uh, two edges. Again, a somewhat remarkable variation. But whether it's scroll or sickle, the idea and effect is the same. What is set forth here is the penetrating nature of God's Word. Um, You know, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, and Revelation chapter 19, and verse 15, you see the Lord riding forth and out of his mouth comes a sword, a two-edged sword, speaking of his word. The effect is exactly the same here, even if it is a scroll. It is the penetrating nature of God's word. Now, where, where there is openness and sincerity, though failing and even sin. God's word becomes a blessing, healing, restoring, covering. Where there is deceitfulness and subterfuge, God's word becomes a curse, exposing, consuming, and destroying. I don't think there could be any vision with more serious and solemn content than this one. You see, it is the same word that on the one hand uh, uh, is a bomb and on the other side is a poison. And everything is dependent upon the person's attitude. Now, if you will note very carefully um, verse 4 of chapter 5, you will find that there are two types of people selected. The thief and the one who swears falsely. Now, why the thief? Now, the thief takes something that's not his. And he takes it always deceitfully. He works in the dark. He works secretly. That's the point. One who swears falsely. He is someone who gives a false impression. He takes the name of the Lord. Oh, he says, I'll swear by the name of the living God, by Jehovah. But he's giving a false impression. He knows jolly well. He's just simply trying to make an impression. He's trying to get by with people. Dishonesty. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is play acting. Taking the name of the Lord, when it doesn't really mean anything. Play acting. Hypocrisy. Using the name of the Lord in vain. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now many people do this, you know, many of us do. We come and say, you know, I think the Lord would have me do so and so. Just a phrase. We tag on the name of the Lord because we feel happier. and We know we'll get by with others, you see. Now, in this sense, these two sins are selected because both are deceitful. God has an answer to every sin a man or woman commits if it is brought out in openness into the light and put under the blood of the Lamb. But once there is deceitfulness, once there is an absolute determination to go on and to cover it up and to hide it, relying on subterfuge and deceit, then God's word turns from being a blessing and a balm to a curse and a poison. You see, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, the prophet cries out, Wherefore have ye robbed God? You've robbed him in time. In other words, what belonged to the Lord of their time of, of their of their being, of their money of, of, of everything they had taken back, they had become thieves of what belonged to the Lord, the Lord said, "You are robbers, you've robbed me." Now, this vision has gone a lot along this very line, those who swear by the name of the Lord falsely, who take the name of the Lord in vain, those who rob the Lord of his rights, who rob the Lord of what is his. Your body, your time, your home, your possessions, your family, you are not your own. You're bought with a price. Have you been robbing God? Have you been taking the name of the Lord in vain? Well, this, you see, has something to say to us. Such deceitfulness concerning God's house and work always results in the blighting and consuming of their own houses. If they're deceitful over God's house, then their own houses are consumed, both both stones and timber. One scholar, Dumlow, who's a dear, a dear man, I rather like the way he, he Deals with things, um, said this rather, made this rather cryptic, wrote this rather cryptic remark in his commentary. He thinks that this vision was intended for certain prominent people who did not subscribe to the rebuilding, saying that they had no money. You know, that finds all of us out. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't. I have no time. Rubbish. I'm sorry, I've got no money. Rubbish. So on and so forth. Finds us out. If you and I are deceitful, if we take the name of the Lord in vain, if we rob God, and we are deceitful about it, God's word becomes, instead of a blessing, a curse. You see, this is solemn. It reveals an unalterable law. Where there is deceitfulness, God's word penetrates, and instead of blessing, it brings a curse. In verse 4, uh, in the last part of the verse, there's a very interesting word. Listen to it. I will cause it to go forth, saith the Lord, and face of the last part, it shall abide, the last half, and it shall abide in the midst of his house. This word is most interesting. It means to roost. That is means to roost. God's word comes home to roost. Always. It comes home to roost either as a blessing or as a curse. It's as simple as that. If you're God's child, God's word comes home to roost. Always. And it comes either as a blessing with balm Covering, healing, restoration, or it comes as a curse, to consume and destroy. And I'm sorry that it's so very serious, but uh, there we are, it depends on our attitude. Then the seventh vision, from chapter 5, from verse 5 to 11. And I have um, described this as the Epha and the woman. Uh, and I have entitled it The Counterfeit of God's Work. Now again, this is a very important vision, especially in these days. In this vision, Zechariah saw first an ephah. Now what is an ephah? I don't know how many of you know what an ephah is. I know, I thought it was something to do with the temple until I began to study it. An ephah is a barrel-like cereal measure. Uh, it's large enough to take a person, and um, it has. Also in this vision, we not only see the ephah, but we also see a large circular lead cover weighing about 100 weight, which, when lifted, revealed within the barrel, the ephah, a woman sitting called wickedness. Then the lid was put back on very firmly. She was pushed back in very quickly. The lid, which weighed a hundredweight, was firmly uh, put back on. And then two other women, I'm sorry about this, but two other ladies came with with wings like storks and they lifted up the barrel, uh, the ephah, with the woman in it and took it away to Babylon, the land of Shinar, where a house was to be built. Now comparing this 7th vision with the preceding 6, we find a remarkable correspondence. In the preceding 6 we find Jerusalem. In this vision, it's Babylon. In the preceding 6, we find it's the house of the Lord. In this vision, it's the house of the In the preceding 6, it's the daughter of Zion. In this vision, it is this woman called Wicked. We need also to note a few other things before we can come to an interpretation. Note the word ephah and talent, the leaden cover that fitted on top of the ephah. Both of these terms refer to commerce. So commerce, or what often is called in scripture the mammon of unrighteousness, (coughs) is here symbolised. Secondly, the stork, in verse 9, these two ladies who had the um, wings of a stork, if you look in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 13 and verse 19, you will find that these birds are to be held in an abomination. And you will discover that right down the list is the stork. It is therefore clear that these these stalk like wings, these women with stalk like wings, denote agencies other than of God. They are not, as one commentator who wished to defend, ladies said, that they, that they were just merely angels. Um, it is obvious that they are um, agencies other than of God, that were the energy and mainspring of this um, uh, ephah. Then again would you also uh, note the land of Shinar uh, in verse 11 which is Babylon which always in scripture from Genesis chapter 10 where a little after that when Nimrod founded it and later on you find the Tower of Babel was built there from then on Babylon in scripture has always represented or been a symbol of the satanically inspired work of fallen humanity. It is always a symbol over against Jerusalem, or the work of God. Babylon, the work of our natural natural fallen man. In this, then we have three things combined, which, whenever you find them in Scripture always symbolise a counterfeit church. What are those three things? Commerce, a wicked woman and Babylon. Whenever you get those three things linked together, you have a counterfeit church or a counterfeit work of God, however you like to look at it. Something that is uh, the counterpart, the satanic counterpart to God's work. Now if you want uh, to look that up uh, let's just very swiftly look at Revelation where of course everything is finally summed up very swiftly now Revelation, uh, if you want to put it in your notes Revelation chapter 17 and chapter 18 you go home and read it you'll be very thrilled about it because it will throw a lot of light on this vision but if we'll just read one or two verses chapter 17 verse 4 the woman, that's the woman on this scarlet coloured beast was arrayed in purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stone and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations even the unclean things of a fornication and upon her forehead a name written mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of the harlots and of the abominations of the earth what a terrible vision, now do mark it she's decked in purple and scarlet and gold, precious stone and pearls Then again, uh, chapter 18, verse 16, saying, Woe, woe, the great city! She that was arrayed in fine linen with purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stone and pearl. Now turn over to Revelation 21. I'm not going to read all these verses, I'm afraid you'll have to do it. From verse 9 to verse uh, 21, and you will discover that you have another bride, another woman. This one is decked in fine linen, if you uh, look at chapter 19. Uh, she also is decked in fine linen, but she has gold, precious stone, and pearl. You have these two things, you see. Now this, I believe, is very important for us to understand. One cannot help but see here a counterfeit church. It begins with God's people in God's land, but its source and energy is not of God, although it's associated with the name of God, the things of God, the word of God, and the people of God. It starts in God's land, it starts amongst God's people. It's associated with all those things that are to do with the Lord. But its source is not of God in God, and nor is it energy. Now you know in spiritual things, origin determines development and end. Your mother was a monkey, you can't help it, you'll become a monkey. Your origin determines your development and your end. You can't help it. If uh, you plant cabbage seed, its development is according to a cabbage and its ends to reproduce other cabbages. It can do nothing else. Its origin determines its development and its end. You You take a a caterpillar, it's going to become a chrysalis, but the end is a butterfly, because it was born of a butterfly. Now in spiritual things this is an absolute law. An absolute law. That's why the Lord says when he scatters the seed, leave the tares see, origin determines development and end. The wheat will get there, and the tares will get where they're going as well. Origin determines development and course. This counterfeit church has not got its source in God, nor its energy from God. So its course will be marked by departure, from God's mind, it manifests its true source and energy in, it, in that it departs more and more from God's mind until it is a holy satanic counterfeit, though supposedly uh, serving God and for God. This counterfeit, and I want to make this very clear, this counterfeit is always linked to and backed by commerce. Always. Now, I won't say anything more this evening about this, but just keep your eyes open. And in these, in the next decade, you'll see what I mean. This counterfeit thing is linked to and backed by commerce. It, the, the, the spirit of the world, pomp and grandeur, grand and uh, ambition masters it. So when you come to the book of Revelation, you've got all this there. You've got this woman; she's riding on the beast. The beast is this great world system, the political, economic world system, and the woman is the counterfeit to the bri- the counterfeit bride of God. She's wedded to the beast. She's a harlot. There are therefore two things at present growing and developing in the world according to this vision. The true church of God and the counterfeit church of Satan which is called in the book of Revelation at the beginning the synagogue of Satan. And the, and, and, and the point is this. The Lord is on the throne. In the end, he will glorify the one and destroy the other. I will leave you to read the last chapters, from chapter 17 to the end of the book of Revelation, to see just what I mean. Now, the eighth vision, the four chariots, chapter 6, first eight verses. The sovereign—I—I I, I have entitled this—the sovereign activity of the Lord concerning His purpose. The eighth and last vision corresponds to the first in fundamental meaning, although it's different in detail. Uh, In the first we saw three scouts reporting back to the Lord. Now in this last we see four chariots going out from the Lord on his errands. Zechariah saw in this vision, if you look at it, two mountains of brass. They symbolize the immutable and established counsel of God from the beginning of the world. Brass always speaks of divine strength, divine judgment, divine counsel in Scripture. You'll find that right the way through, it's a symbol. So this is a picture once again of the immutable and established counsel of God from the beginning of time. There being you the, the out from between these mountains, a valley, that cleft the two of the between the two, uh, come four chariots, with different coloured horses pulling them. And um, these chariots being used only in war or on state occasions, uh, always again signify power and authority. You must remember these are apocalyptic visions. That is nearly everything in them has symbolic meaning. We are told in verse 5 that these chariots represent the four winds or spirits of heaven. The Hebrew for wind and spirit is the same word. The authorised version, the revised version, uh, and the American Standard Version are better than the revised standard version in the rendering of this. The revised standard version has put in two of the four winds. The so two is not in the original, but they felt that perhaps it makes more sense, The point is in this vision, the original says, that these four chariots are the four spirits of heaven. Now this vision would seem to represent the sovereign worldwide activity of the Lord by his spirit in pursuing his counsel and bringing in his Christ and kingdom. Do these four chariots represent the four world empires of Daniel's vision. Some people believe the four horns of the second vision and the four chariots of this vision are to be identified with Daniel's vision of the image and of the beast. You know the four great world empires. Babylon, followed by Persia, followed by Greece, followed by Rome and we today are an extension of Rome. Well, I don't know. All I can say is this that um, if they do, then this vision uh, doesn't alter the meaning of this vision. The Lord ruling and overruling everything to secure his own objective. It is certainly true that there are some very interesting similarities here. I must say that. I've been rather interested in them. Um the, the direction in which the horses go, the fact that the last chariot is grizzled and and the original is grizzled and strong, which is rather interesting because you remember the last part of the of the um of the legs of the image were strong, very strong see, was iron, and the last part was strong. and then the last beast was exceedingly strong it's rather interesting that the last chariot is called very strong see, grizzled and strong it's also a mixture again as the others were. just interesting. Another interesting thing is that the last chariot is allowed to go all over the earth, whereas the others are given bounds. And again, you see, it's the same with the last great empire that it was to be worldwide, which of course it has. Roman civilization has spread to the ends of the earth. Roman alphabet, Roman law, everything more or less we've got today is based upon uh, the last great phase um, of, uh, of world history which came in with Rome. However, whether we think we can identify these four chariots with these four world empires or not, the point remains that the, the it does not alter the actual meaning of this vision, which is the sovereign activity of the Lord. The whole panorama of God's purpose is brought before, before us in these eight visions. And really, this last vision seems to suggest that little word of Isaiah, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Well now, lastly, we will end in chapter 6 with the verses we read from verse 9 to the end. This is not a vision. It It is a symbolic act. It is the coronation of Joshua, the high priest. Uh, that's how we will describe it. And we will, I've entitled it, The Coming Christ. We are not sure when this took place, some believing that it was, in fact, yet another vision on the same night as the previous ones. However, the, dif- the different beginning in verse 9, if you look at it carefully, you will see there's a quite different beginning to the rest. The word of the Lord came to me. Um, suggests that this uh, was not a vision, but actually took place. Most scholars agree with that now. Uh, And probably took place sometime after the end of the visions in the eighth month of the second year of Darius. This coronation was a prophetic act. That is, it is as prophetic as the visions or messages of the rest of the book. The real and essential theme of the eight visions is now clearly focused And we discover that what was in the visions just as a faint intimation and inference is now brought right out into the open. That is the coming of Christ. We discover that Zerubbabel, the governor, Joshua, the high priest, the temple, the city, are but shadows of that which is to come. Zechariah is told to receive gold and silver from certain folk who have returned from Babylon make crowns crown Joshua the high priest then he is to take the crowns and place them in the temple of the Lord when it's rebuilt so that they shall remain there as a memorial until Messiah comes in other words they shall be a remembrancer in the presence of the Lord to await his coming that these folk have, as it were, crowned him. Uh, it is also very interesting that the word crown in Hebrew is in plural, and the verb is in the singular. That's why you've got the difference in your, some of your versions. You'll have crown in others crowns. The point is this, that it was a composite crown. It was a crown with many crowns. You've got the same thing in the book of Revelation where it says, the Lord Jesus went forth with many crowns. So it doesn't mean that he. I, I don't know. As a boy, I used to wonder quite how he got many crowns on his head. You see, but it doesn't mean that. It means that he has one crown after another, a composite crown, circlet after circlet, of crowns. He's rather, you know, the Pope's triple crown. Uh, 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 well, something like that. <laughs> this symbolic act is remarkable since it runs counter to all previous prophecy. You see, the office of king and priest were not only strictly defined, but separated, never to be combined. Now in, in scripture, this is very clear, that Azariah was struck with leprosy because he tried to do the priest's job. The two offices were kept absolutely apart. The king was never to meddle with the, uh, the service of the priest, and the priest was never to meddle with the service of the king. The two offices were absolutely dis- distinct. Melchizedek uh, in Abraham's time is the only exception in the whole of scripture to this rule. he was both king and priest in one now because of this many modern scholars feel this must have been performed on Zerubbabel and not Joshua this coronation Uh, that something happened to Zerubbabel as a result probably the Persians heard that he'd been crowned that there was something like a rebellion and deposed him very quickly, this is interesting, historically, his goes off the face of, na- of the narrative, and we just don't know what happened to him. It's most strange. Uh, that's what some scholars feel. And they feel that, therefore, Joshua's name was substituted, thinking that the high priest's name would not be associated in the eyes of the Persian government with any kind of rebellion or trouble. They point also to Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, as ruling out the possibility Of Joshua being the builder of the temple. Because here, Joshua is called the builder of the temple. Whereas in chapter 4, 6 and 7, it's clearly said, Zerubbabel's hands laid the foundation. His hands shall also finish it. The plummet shall be seen in his hand. So they say, now, isn't there a bit of a mix-up here? Nevertheless, the point is this. In Zechariah 3, verse 8 to 10, in this wonderful uh, vision of the acquittal of the high priest, we saw Joshua as a figure or type of Christ. In chapter, um, in, the, in, the, in the next chapter, uh, 4, from verse 6 to verse 10, you have got again Zorobabel as the one who builds the house, again prefiguring Christ, uh, his great descendant. Uh, and then, in chapter 4, from verse 11 to 14, you have the two anointed ones, representing Joshua and Zerubbabel, standing before the Lord of the whole earth. You have already, in other words, got a prophetic intimation of the union of kingship and priesthood in the coming Christ. Now quite distinctly in this symbolic act we have a marvelous prophecy of Christ the priest king uh, according or after the order of Melchizedek read Hebrews chapter 7 and you'll understand what we're talking about. You see, who being the resurrection and the life the branch, the sprout, the shoot will produce out of himself a new man just as Eve was taken out of Adam, so the church has been taken out of Christ as a new man, as the bride. He is the branch, has shooted up. See? Something's happened. He's produced something through mm. his own resurrection and life. And then again here you have the one forecast who will build and complete the temple, the church of God. And in verse 15, you have a prophecy of many nations and peoples afar off who will come to have part in that day in the building of the church. Now this is a remarkable prophecy. Can you imagine the Jews? They had watched so carefully about their relationships with foreigners and Gentiles and now they hear this amazing prophecy that in the day when the Messiah comes many people who are far off shall come, nations, strong nations they'll come. A bit later on in Zechariah comes out more firmly than ever more strongly than ever. They'll come and they will have part in the building of this temple. Now it seems to me quite clear that uh, um, even in their day, they must have understood from all this that something much bigger and greater was in mind than the temple they were building. That's the meaning of this symbolic act. It's beyond it, as Zechariah was saying, look beyond it, something far bigger is on the way, far, far bigger. All this is but a, a prefiguring of something else. And then, you know, we have here a prophecy of Christ in verse 12 growing up in his place now it's very interesting the idea is insignificance just as in Isaiah 53 he shall grow up a a root out of a dry ground despised, insignificant no beauty that we should desire he shall grow up out of his place quietly, insignificantly unseen by the nation thirty years in Nazareth. Nevertheless, it goes on, he shall bear the glory, all of it, and shall sit and rule upon the throne, crowned with many crowns, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All the building work that they were engaged in, then, was related by Zechariah to the coming Christ and his final coronation. That's the meaning of this symbolic act. Those who had given material for the crowns, who had virtually crowned him, the Lord, the Messiah, in days of trial and difficulty, would be remembered in that day those crowns were to be hung up in the house of the Lord then to await the coming Christ they would not be forgotten we've got that in verse 14 you see the work may now be difficult and weary, and the reign and glory of Christ may not be very apparent his people today may be despised disowned disregarded but, oh my! it'll all be worth it if we've crowned him now to be there uh, at the final that final day when he's crowned king. That's the point of this symbolic act you see uh they knew in his in in, in Zechariah's day that he could. They was it allowed by the law of God that the priest should be crowned? They knew that it could not mean that. So their eyes were to look off to the day when the Lord would come. Great David's greater son, who would bear the glory and sit and rule upon his throne. Well, now that's got a message for you and I as well, hasn't it? Because you see, the whole thing is this this work of reconstruction, this work of recovery, this this work of building, you know it's very wearying, it's very tiring, there's a great battle, there's a great conflict, it's a very despised world. It's a day of small things. Anyone can disregard it, anyone can disown us, anyone can look down their, their nose at us. But let's keep in it. Let's go on. If we may use the symbolism of this chapter, let us from gold and silver make crowns, to crown him. So that in that day when he finally is crowned, we shall be there, remembered by the Lord. May he so help us, shall we?